Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. <laughs> second captain, first captain, whatever. Owen, I like you and I like your style. Trying to be critical, it's going to be impossible. It's a whole new way of doing journalism. It's brilliant. You know, the balls, you know, the stones. I said to him, you, you said to him, in a podcast. You said to him, this guy. Honestly, are we talking about this? Yeah, we are going to talk about it because we haven't talked about it before. And I think it's been five years and I think it's about time. Five years indeed. Hello and welcome to the Second Captain's fifth birthday celebrations. Happy birthday, Murph and Ken. How are you guys doing? Continued happy birthday to you, Owen. And Good on, how are you? That was the turkey neck incident yes. that you brought up after many years, Ken. Yeah. In case people are wondering what we're talking about. there, We don't need to go back there. It's all mm. good vibes today. And I know that's mm. still a source of simmering tension mm. between the two of you. So what I want to say is that we came into being in March 2013, right in the middle of the grimmest Six Nations campaign of the century. <laughs> Italy 22, Ireland 15, anybody? Yeah, that was great. Uh, Peter Manning on the wing, all that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, so yeah. it feels like a nice turn of events that we get to celebrate our fifth birthday at a time when Irish rugby is so strong that we can now win the tournament with a game to spare and still everyone's talking about how much of an anticlimax it was. <laughs> that, my friends, is progress. <laughs> a huge thank you to everyone of you listening today for joining us on the adventure, the World Service crew especially. Thank you. For your recent support and also the Monday-only listeners. Uh, who've been keeping us at the top of the iTunes charts. Now, we do love you all, and to prove our love to you, what we've done for you is to put together a series of interviews, a once-off series of interviews that we believe will knock your socks off. If your socks remain on after these five interviews, more power to you. I'm not expecting it, though. Yeah, they're more likely to to remain on if you've got shoes on as well even Silver these could, these I mean, could it, knock the shoes off be, listen yeah, yeah. you've set the bar high there on, <laughs> but I like where, you're, where your head's at well we wanted to meet a bunch of brilliant people across a range of disciplines trying to take it outside sport where possible five big interviews for our fifth birthday all with hugely interesting talented people who all have a bit of the independent spirit that we know and love and the five exclusive interviewees are one of the world's great filmmakers Ken Loach Myself and Murph have met Ken. One of our all-time favourite sports writers, Paul Kimmage, is going to be in Richie's player's chair. Mm-hmm. Australian rugby head coach, Michael Checa. Lynn Cox, who swam from the US to the Soviet Union back in the 80s during the Cold War to try to ease some tensions there, a bit of sporting diplomacy, that kind of stuff. And first up on tomorrow's pod, in his first sit-down interview since retiring from his TV show last year, a giant of Irish media, the great 
Vincent Brown joined us in studio on the World Service for an interview that we absolutely love doing and we think we're, you're going to love it too. Here's a taster of Vincent. Well, I remember when I was growing up in a small village in County Limerick and I wanted to be a hurling star or to play hurling for the local team or whatever. I was hopeless, incidentally. But... Um, but that was the scale of our objectives. Of course, some of us wanted to be Mick Mackey or Christy Ring or whatever. How far did your own career go? Ah, hopeless. I went to a bloody parts school afterwards, of course, and played rugby and very badly too. What position did you play in hurling? You have to give uh, a bit more detail while we're talking sports. I, no. Come on, Vincent. Well, I'm not going to pretend that I was a, fo- a forward or a back? <laughs> I was a sort, of, sort of a forward. Okay, yeah. A hard-working <laughs> forward. No, not a hard-working forward. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, <laughs> I was sort yeah. of a forward. Yeah, you enjoyed that. Murphy. Not a great, uh, not a ringing endorsement of one's own sporting abilities there. Oh, there's plenty Vincent. more on Vincent Brown's sporting interests and sporting passions, and loads more besides. So this is the kind of stuff that you're going to be hearing if you sign up to the World Service now. A fiver a month for Vincent Brown talking sport mm. and lots great of other ba- stuff. Great yeah. badgering of the witness there, uh, uh, Owen. I was impressed. Well, he sometimes needed to be badgered. People will hear the interview. There are times that Vincent is thoroughly engaged, engage, but he's always engaged. There are times that he's thoroughly giving in mm. answers and there are times that he needs a bit more mm. prodding to he talk about engaged, himself. He can engaged but also quite... Sorry. Yeah, also not answering questions from time to time so you can imagine and you can hear all of that you can hear Michael Checa, Vincent Brown, Lynn Cox, Paul Kimmage and Ken Loach all over the course of the next month. Sign up now on secondcaptains.com to join the party. Not only that but we're going to have very special live show news tomorrow that we're going to be offering a little surprise essentially to World Service members on the show tomorrow on top of all of the podcasts and for myself, Ken Murph, Simon and Mark Thank you again for being so supportive of all the work that we've been doing over the last five years. Now, let's get to it. Duggan, back to Campbell, back to Duggan. McLaughlin going for that line, and Ireland are in and over. Okay, let's get into this. Jerry Thornley, looking forward to picking him? Yeah, immensely, yeah. St. Patrick's Day, Grand Slam at stake, title already in the bag. Um, what, a, what a time. What a time to be alive. I don't think, yeah, I'm pretty sure Ireland have never gone to Twickenham with the Six Nations, with the Grand Slam on the line, and have, of course, won a triple crown there, Shane knows, but it's uh, you couldn't really have scripted it uh, any better than this. Uh, part of me, I listened to other ex-players saying the same, they would have liked England still been alive in terms of the title come the final Saturday, but watching Ireland win the title last Saturday wasn't so bad, and uh, it's nice insurance to have that in the bag going there, and I think uh, it's the team is on such a such a such a momentum going into this. Eleven wins in a row, uh, third title in five years. It couldn't be better set. Three titles in five years, like it really is a staggering achievement, Shane. Obviously, the 2009 team has this exalted status because they won the Grand Slam, which is obviously a phenomenal achievement. But in terms of consistency and getting it done and becoming champions of. Your, your bread and butter tournament year after year this is I know the players have to focus on the next game and all that kind of stuff but we can surely bask in the glow of being Six Nations champions today can't we? Yeah we can and we should do actually as well um, because you know historically it's, a, it's an amazing achievement and, and as you said three and five years unprecedented and put ourselves in a brilliant position uh, I disagree with Jerry. I'm glad uh, England aren't alive in this game. I think it even adds to the, to the pressure that they um, of having to deliver a performance. Um, and they're going to be playing against the most consistent Irish side ever, you know, um, and a higher, even a higher level of consistency. I think we brought some consistency, the team I was in, in the noughties, 
um, but never uh, to such a high degree. This is on a different level. This is uh, consistent success. Um, but you're right, that 2009 team is exalted because they've won a Grand Slam. And this team won't be looked on the same way um, as them until they do, uh, unless they win a Grand Slam this, um, this year or um, in the next couple. It's funny that, isn't it, Jerry? Is that maybe because of the Irish history of Grand Slams, the lack of them, that the consistency probably should be rated above one amazing year? Because Kidney was pretty shaky after that with Ireland, but that one amazing year kind of stands above everything, whereas three and five is probably, you know, in most other sports you say, that's what I'd rather have. Yeah, it just it's the mystique that comes with the Grand Slam and the fact that Ireland have only ever won two in history and one in the last 70 years. Um, it's the same with all careers. It shows your trophies, you know what I mean? And that's why for that golden age, I was so happy for the likes of O'Driscoll and O'Connell and O'Gara that they did have a Grand Slam to their names. I just think it makes all the difference in the world. Just You can show that off at the end of your career and yes, you've achieved something that so few others did. And I think um, it's the... In terms of the Six Nations and outside the World Cup, it's the one missing achievement in the careers of, say, Johnny Sexton and Conor Murray. For them to be, you know, to really rival O'Gara and Stringer in the pantheon of Irish great halfbacks, for them to have a Grand Slam on top of, you know, three titles in five years and the Heineken Cups that Johnny has won and Pro 12 titles and the two Lions tours they've both been on, it just kind of ticks another box. Shane, I've been, I don't know if it's impressed or just surprised by, for a country that's had so little success traditionally, uh, the media aren't exactly falling over in love with the team. Um, I mean, you know, there's all sorts of different views from the papers and radio and uh, TV. But in general, it's we're, we're very prepared to look at the flaws in this Irish team. Is that a healthy thing, do you think? Is that actually a good sign? Um, I, I, think, I think it's no harm. And I think... Um, it would be wrong not to look at at the flaws. There aren't too many, um, but we have come from a situation over the last nearly, you know, I suppose, eighteen years, uh, you know, in our, of Irish rugby that there has been a much higher expectation on all Irish teams, possibly than any other teams that had come before them in history. Um, so we can't look at them and rate this Irish team. Um, as we would a team in the 1990s. The building blocks are there. The foundations have been laid. Um, the previous success has been there. We, have, we know we have very good players who perform at the highest level and have delivered hiding cups and have delivered uh, championships. We know we have an excellent coach who has, an, again, an unprecedented level of success. So we have to scrutinise uh, this team a little bit higher. Uh, because they've moved on to an entirely higher plane. That's a positive for everybody who's involved in, in, in rugby, including the players as well. And I don't think the, uh, the scrutiny has been um, overly harsh either. If you, if you no- notice it, a lot of it mirrors the interviews that, you, um, that, that have, are done by the players, the coach and uh, the captain after every game. They realise they're not delivering perfect performances, but it's almost like delivering a por- perfect performance is, is the standard that they've set themselves. And you're right, there's maybe a little bit more romance in you know, being the underdog and, or you know, fighting against you know, greater odds and having a, you know, a player produce an, a moment of magic. But we're still, we are seeing some moments of magic. We're just not seeing um, as many mistakes. We're seeing a lot of pl- players who deliver incredibly consistently all the time. Maybe there is less romance than that. But as a player, I, I know what I'd want to be. I, I'd want to have those medals in my back pocket. Yeah, I, I, you're comparing 
you know, the pre-2000, which is 2000 is kind of the start of all this success, really, and consistency. But if you even just take the last few years, I mean, Eddie didn't win a championship. Kidney only won one. We're going for our third under Joe, and yet... I know the players were thinking immediately about next week, but I was just surprised that immediately was about the Grand Slam. Like a championship no longer feels like a massive achievement. Um, maybe, yeah, maybe not immediately under these circumstances. And it's, you know, unfortunately the players may have devalued it a little bit themselves. They'll still, you know, when their career is over and they look at their, their medals and, the, you know, everything's written down, they'll go, that was you know, they would be so happy that they did it. But much like um, the Triple Crown in the noughties, it, it did become devalued because the desire was not just for Triple Crowns, but it was for championships and it was for Grand Slams, something that wasn't achieved um, into, until uh, 2009, right at the end of that decade. Um, so, like, I, I can understand you know why it's happening but you know players will be um when they when retrospectively when they look back at their careers they'll be absolutely delighted um with a, a championship but um over this week has been weird and it will continue to be weird because there's a bigger prize at stake and because they've tasted the other success and because they put themselves in this position um, no matter what happens on saturday outside of a a win there will be a level of disappointment. And that will be with the players and will be the coach and it will be the fans and it will be the analysts as well. Mm. And I think we can't move away from that. And it's just a position that we've put ourselves in and it's a position these players have put themselves in. And you commend them for putting themselves in that position. But, but because of that, um, what success looks like changes. And it has changed. And... It's very, very clear that these players won't be sated unless it's a Grand Slam this weekend. It's also the way it's fallen, just by sheer... And on top of all that, it's just the way it's fallen. In the fact that, I mean, if you think back to 2014, Ireland lost in Twickenham, then went to Paris, outscored France three tries to two in a really epic game. When It was a good French side who produced their performance of the year and won the title on the pitch by dint of their own deeds. Even in 2015, they did it in Super Saturday and that was dramatic. This is simply different by, just by the optics of it, the way it's fallen, the fact that they've already won the title with a round to spare um, and there's a bigger prize at stake next week it means you can't really celebrate it's like Sexton said it was very muted in the team room where they were, where they were when they were conferred as champions and um, they also probably all remember and we all remember 2001 2011 2015 and the sight of England receiving a trophy having just been beaten <laughs> by Ireland and they didn't look too happy about it yeah. so we know that <laughs> Matt Williams said something interesting on TV3 this is directly after the match Smash the myth about Irish rugby. You know, you've got to be underdogs, can't put performances back together. Five seasons in a row, they haven't, they haven't lost a game at home. Like, you know, I, I find the rugby a little bit boring, I'll be honest. I, I find the way they play a little bit boring. But, you know, what, what sort of a comment when you, when is that? When you say boring, though, you know? Yeah, I, I do. I'm just being honest. But you, you, so what I, do you I, mean? I, It's not a joy to behold. Now, well, I'm sure we'll chat to Matt himself later on in the week, so he won't mind us analysing that analysis of the team, Jerry. I find it interesting that this team can't shake the tag. I mean, he's used the word boring. Certainly a lot of people use the word conservative. And this is a team that scored 17 tries <laughs> in this tournament. Do you, do you think it is, it's boring? I think boring is a very strong word to use. I don't agree with that. I was surprised when I went back and played the tape on Sunday and, and heard the, the reaction from Matt particularly using that word boring. Um, I think that um, if you look back in 2009, 
this team has scored this team scored more in two home games back to back than that team did in the entire Six, Six Nations Grand Slam winning campaign. Scored, they, even, scored, scored already seventeen tries compared to eight tries in total in twenty fifteen, and yeah. that was that that was a kind of a boring team under yeah, Schmidt. Yeah. but he's obviously developed it. Yeah, and that team in 09 that won the Grand Slam only conceded three tries. This team is leaking by comparison, like a sieve yeah. compared to that team. But no, who remembers that now? Who cares that they they only scored whatever number of tries twelve and only conceded. Three, they won the Grand Slam, and I think that if you look back at their performance on Saturday, I always felt this was going to be an edgy performance because of just the way it had fallen—the penultimate leg, but tilted the Grand Slam at home as favourites, um, with the possibility of winning the title. I thought there was a fair bit of ambition in the first half. If you think about Keith Earl's floated pass over Jacob Stocktail, if you think about Johnny Sexton twice failing to execute the wraparound with Bundyaki and other instances, the, the strike move off the scrum where Bundyaki switched the open side and gave Gary Ringrose the space to take on Peter Horn. These were all adventurous moves, but they, there was an edginess and they were rushing it. There was a palpable edginess. It was even in the crowd. It was quite muted, muted I thought, in the first half. And they reined it in at half time. I think there were seven handing errors in the first half, none in the second. They were much more direct in the second half, and they got the job done. And I think um, I don't find that boring. I, do I, find, I, find, I find the way they remorsely pile pressure on opposing teams until they crack quite, quite, quite absorbing. It, it is funny, Shane. I think sometimes rugby is analysed a little bit differently to some other sports. If a, if a football team scores all these goals in a tournament, if they b- beat a team scoring four goals, nobody really analyzes if it's if they're long balls or whatever. If an NFL team scores a bunch of touchdowns, it, it's just there on the scoreboard. Whereas I don't know, rugby just seems to sometimes be analyzed in a different way do you did you find them boring to watch um I, I don't agree because i think you know especially in football if if uh, goals are scored a certain way you, you know i suppose if you look at you know historically you know wimbledon with a long ball game if they were scoring tries then they were they were analyzed in a certain way even you know manchester united are analyzed in a certain way even though that they're you know they're having success as well and i think unfortunately for you know this Irish team they're being analyzed in a, in a similar way almost as as manchester united now i don't think there's a, a comparison between uh, the two styles 17 but, tries um, though shane it's a, it's an incredible amount and that's the aim of the game is to is to score tries it's not like we're some sort of kicking team that are winning games you know 15 12 or whatever no i agree i agree and i i don't think i wouldn't go as far as to say they're boring but there's there's some I, I don't think that they are uh, playing to their capacity you know and that's a you know I think that's a positive thing for them um, I agree with Jerry this game was always on Saturday it was always going to be a nervy one um, just in the way that it was you know the fourth game was the Scottish uh, against the Scottish team you know, the expectations what they were going to win it um, there was an eye on next week no matter what you say so uh, it was going to be nervy they did start off the game trying things there's no doubt about that as well and their execution was off and even you know someone as, as consistently brilliant as Johnny Sexton his his um, execution was just off a little bit in a few of the things they were doing you know a, a tap on that he normally wouldn't do um, you know just a few th- the balls were inside shoulder from a number of players um, so you know from that side of things they were trying things then they it, it wasn't working for them and then they um, reduced their game plan a little bit in the second half and got over the line. All of all the things that you should expect them to do and are right to do under the circumstances of the match and under the circumstances of the tournament. So, you know, there's no critique in getting, uh, criticism of them in getting over the line in the way they did. I think there was a nagging element that's been right the way through this Six Stations with a couple of, uh, aside from a couple of periods, is they're not quite playing at the moment uh, to the level they can. And it's because of the admiration that 
people have for this team, for the individuals in it, the standard of quality of them, and its coach. That we think, I thought that we play the standard we played um, before uh, Christmas in that autumn series. I thought this is something else. We're gone to another another level, and if this continues, um, we're we're going to see play see a team play at their top top end. Um, and we haven't yet done it. Now, it doesn't matter if we win the tournament. It, you know, we win the tournament. But the critique will, rem- will, will remain. And the, I think the specific example of where uh, they've fallen back a little bit is the interplay between the forwards and the backs. I haven't seen to any degree uh, in this tournament, in the setup where we've seen, you know, that, that, pod, that forward pod of, of three, uh, three forwards to take the ball off the nine, um, and then have the ghost 10 or ghost runner in behind and to uh, unleash a second wave. And we have seen a lot of the receivers um, off nine, very, very stationary. And, and you know, that, is, that side of things is a little bit boring. And, um, you know, I, I think that this team can go somewhere else. And I think that's where Matt's uh, criticism is, is grounded. Shane, I completely agree with that. In you know, November, it felt like we could really go New Zealand level and we've fallen off that. And it's it's kind of encouraging in a way to have won four in a row and be arguably way off our potential here. And just look and say the 20, you know, the narrative and a lot of the analysis is around Joe Schmidt because he's such a, a dominant factor and such a dominant character. But say the 2014 and 2015 championship winning teams, they were grindingly efficient. Like just even take the wingers that seemed to rook more than they scored tries. And while this team is still following Joe's plan, I just feel it's one that's way more reliant on the talent at its disposal, or certainly on those talents making big plays at key times. And it sort of feels like it's slightly out of Ireland's control, or we're not just like this machine where we've got like a Sexton drop goal or Stockdale intercepts, or say Murray taking the penalty just after a knee injury against Wales, where it's like big moments are winning the games as opposed to a feel of this is definitely inexorably heading towards a Grand Slam? I'm not certain if I agree with that. I think we have had some big moments uh, and we've had key players that have delivered them. Now, every team that is going to have success at a very high level needs their big players to deliver in big moments. That's what being a big player is. That's what being a leader, as we so often hear about, that's what being a leader is. Um, so what I do agree with, though, um, is that they're play, they played in the Autumn Series um, on a level that could, uh, that, I, that I thought that they could you know, blow away almost any team or certainly live with the, the, the Southern Hemisphere nations and play a, a really exciting uh, style and, uh, of rugby um, that maximizes the quality of their players and the talents of their players. And, um, you know, if... Uh, I know we always put everything, uh, we always put winning the Six Nations tournament ahead of everything else. And um, we probably needed to do that. And we probably needed to do it um, to win this Grand Slam. Maybe I think it does make it, or it makes it more difficult, actually, not less difficult to win a, a Six Nations by doing that, though, by reverting to a, a more basic game plan with a, a little less risk, um, as we saw in the second half against Scotland. I think you know our lives would be easier, or this team's lives would be easier if we continued on the sort of um, on the on the um, the system and the style that we were playing in the autumn. But it's hard to get our heads around that because there's other pressures that come with with playing in the Six Nations and winning a tournament. So I think will it be a good enough going forward to? Will we see this again in the summer? Will we see them go back to the style before, uh, with the less inhibited style that we saw in the autumn? And then, if we do see that in the summer, and we bring it through to the autumn again, can we continue it on 
um, in, a, in a Six Nations because if we can do that then it's not just about winning Six Nations or it's winning Grand Slams I honestly believe that the group of players that they have at the moment the group coming through um, could, lead, could, could do something massive at, this, at the next World Cup Jerry, what do you think of that? I think that uh, November's peacetime rugby and Six Nations is war. So, like, uh, so we're seeing the truth now. Yeah, a little bit. I think that you've just got to put, keep that in context. You know, November is peacetime rugby. This is war. And it's championship rugby and there's a title on the line. And it's the only title that's on the line on an annual basis until it comes around to World Cup mm. year. But play, I think playing just, New Zealand, Jerry. sorry to cut yeah. across you. Playing New Zealand surely is as much pressure as an Irish player faces. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure, and that's and they they produced two phenomenal performances against him, not just one, two, mm. in beating them in Chicago and almost backing up two weeks later in in that match in in the Aviva Stadium. So I do think that in terms of building a more complete game and a game that maybe would require them to win off forty percent possession some days or to come from behind some days, that where they, like in all there's been a kind of a similar pattern to all four matches. It's amazing that this remorseless machine can win over 60% possession and 60% territory in four consecutive games. That's not going to be the case every day and they might have to find other ways to win a match. But I do think that if they were to win a Grand Slam next Saturday and then have a more peacetime rugby in summertime and more peacetime rugby next November, that this, and with the shackles then off and with a Grand Slam and a third title in the, in the bag in five years, I think you will see that evolve more and more. Yeah, certainly won't be peacetime rugby next week, Jerry, at Twickenham. <laughs> and, and particularly with the mindset of the England team, both yourself and Shane disagree slightly over that. I mean, O'Driscoll, about whether... Oh, no, I don't. I, I think Shane mis- misinterpreted me. What I was saying was I was, wasn't sure coming into the game whether I would like England to be out of the race or in the race. Yeah. Now that they're out of the race, it doesn't really matter. It's still as competitive as ever and Ireland have the title, so I'm quite happy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, uh, maybe it would have been nice for them to be out of the race, but have still snatched a victory at the end against France. That's what Brian O'Driscoll suggested that mm. it might have been, you know, because it's just the humiliation they face now if they lose three in a row, culminating with handing us the Six Nations, the Grand Slam. And we've been in that situation. It's so bizarre talking about England in this way, by it the way. Is. Let's just take stock for a second. Yeah. England, you it's know, England ready to spoil Ireland Grand Slam party. Even yeah. just seeing these kind of headlines during the week is going to be a hell of a lot of fun. Complete mirror image of last yeah, year. Yeah, but that's yeah. A, we have to be careful because we know that motivation on the other side and it's a pretty powerful one. We were no great shakes last year and we turned it on against England. Mm. So would you be fearful um, or is there just too much improvement that England need to make in the course of a week because they were poor they've been poor for the last two weeks they've been poor and maybe now as Shane has been saying all along that performance against Wales was a little bit of a warning sign wasn't mm. it when they didn't score another try or another point after the first 20 minutes and just try to batter Wales and submission and play territory um, they've I don't know it was extraordinary to see them play as again like they did last Saturday once again they under-resourced the rook it was like they were thinking a play ahead and only one or two were going in in isolation to clear out, and they were getting turned over the ruck. It was a battery of one-off runners with a lot of straight runners. There was uh, very little variation in their game plan. They looked, again, I thought, very lethargic. They looked almost overtrained, certainly overcoached, overthinking, and um, just no inspiration to play until the last 10 minutes. That's when they actually started to throw the shackles off. And it'll be very interesting to see how they approach this game. They have won their last 15 matches in a row in the Six Nations at Twickenham. Um, I think Wales last team to beat them there in 2010. They're unbeaten at Twickenham since the World Cup. Um, Ireland don't have a great record there. They're going to be playing with a lot of pride. You would imagine the line. We're going to spring low to each other. They're a wounded animal. And they haven't lost three in a row, as you said, since 2006. Ironically enough, the exact same three teams in the exact same sequence. Um, they lost to Scotland, France and Ireland in, in consecutive games that year. I would imagine there would be a big reaction, but at the moment, 
um, Ireland look much more assured in what they're doing, much more alert. Um, we, we think through a game, more leadership, more, more ability to change the tempo of the game and um, certainly way more momentum. Shane, I find it really hard to imagine my head seeing England lose three games in a row. I know that's not uh, scientific, but it, just from the high that they've come from. I know what you mean. And if you had have asked me before the Scotland game, um, I wouldn't have thought that they, I thought, you know, the start of the Six Nations, they may have lost against Scotland. I didn't think they'd lose against France. But after the French game, it does give me a little bit of hope. I would have said, um, prior to that French game, I would have said that England would beat Ireland at Twickenham, uh, just for a lot of the reasons that Jerry just outlined there and for the, you know, some of the rugby that we had seen them play over the last two years. But I think they're, they're looking mentally shot. And for long periods of that game, their players... Um, looked disengaged. It was almost like they were um, they were shell shocked, and they didn't know what was getting on, going on, and they didn't know what they were meant to do. Um, more than you know, an old sort of old, very old English adage of our the English sides that you know your plan A is go hard, your plan B is plan A go harder, mm. and that's what it looked like, and that's not enough at, at this level, even against France. Um, but the way they've sort of fallen off a cliff. Has has really surprised me. I, I didn't think that they could drop on their standards uh, as quickly as they have now. You know, we had said there's a couple of issues. You know, going back prior to uh, this Six Nations and and the Autumn Series and actually the Summer Series before that, and it wasn't like the first year of Eddie Jones. It reminded me, you know, of the of, you know the saying, you know, uh, you know how do, how do you go bankrupt? It's slow at first and then all at once. And that's sort of what's happening to this English team. There was we noticed there was little things that weren't going right and things that were wrong, and all of a sudden, it's been a catastrophe over the last couple of weeks. Now that doesn't mean that it's going to be easy for Ireland, and we're not going to see some sort of change uh, with England and uh, uh, with a, a very physical performance. But I think it's probably the best kind of situation that Ireland could have hoped for going into this last game. Some very interesting phrases you both use. Shane says England look mentally shot. You mentioned the word alertness there. They don't seem to have the same land that they are, that they don't have that and that they do look lethargic. These are all, it's a strange kind of position to be in in the middle of a Six Nations campaign. Do you think in some ways it's down to this fairly relentless coaching style that Eddie Jones has by all accounts? He seems to be, even by the standards of <laughs> professional rugby coaches, seems to be a workaholic who's constantly on to the other coaches and there just seems to be a big intensity to it. Is there any chance that maybe... Um, They've been overcoached in some way? Or well, that's what I intense? said. I use those words, overcoached. They looked up to me, overcoached, yeah. overtrained even. Um, I believe, word is it, that they were overtrained coming into the Aviva match last year against Ireland. They overdid it that week, I'm told, from some sources. Um, he freely admits he gets up at half four, five o'clock in the morning and begins immediately start emailing and text messaging other members of staff. He says some get back to him immediately, some don't. <laughs> um, there's been quite a turnover in backroom staff. Um and there is a lethargy about some of the players. Like when you see Joe Launchbury, Chris Robshaw, Maro Toje going to rucks and not clean out players, it's quite surprising. Um, Maro Toje just doesn't look the same player. I was watching in the Lions store when he was yeah. just phenomenal. He was like a, a young Martin Johnson, you know. He was just really phenomenal. What he, the energy and physicality he brought to all those three tests. Um, he just doesn't seem to be bringing that same energy. And of course, you know, 
they're also every team is dependent upon some key players and so much of their game in their title winning back to back years was predicated upon Billy Vunapolo getting them over the game line. He was just their go to man and so much of their starter players revolved around what he did, what he did for them. And they're missing Ben Yons as a live wire. It's not that Danny Kerr isn't a good player, but they're then missing Danny Kerr coming off the bench. They won so many of their games through the impact of Danny Kerr, Jack Noel, and these kind of players. And they're missing that now as well to change the tempo in the last 20 minutes to up the tempo. And that's not happening for them. And um, it's it's just been really interesting to watch. It can happen to a team uh, in a lot of team sports where you go on a long, unbeaten run and then suffer your first defeat. And it does it does become very difficult for them. You've, we've seen it so many times. I remember that Arsenal team went 49 games unbeaten. There's loads of examples. You just suddenly struggle when the unbeaten record goes. Yeah, it's been so long is, preserving it. I think they lost three in a row shortly afterwards. They certainly went the yeah. only time before recently that they'd lost three in a yeah. row. Against it. So yeah, this is, it's a funny one, Shane. Do you buy into this idea of over-coaching that there's too much intensity and that they're now, that they're now lagging a bit because of it? Um. I suppose what what the definition of overcoaching is, um, I think giving players as much information as possible to be as informed as they can prior to a game, I don't think to see there's anything wrong with that. Well, well even, more... over tra- even over training, you know, if it is well, the case that they, they no, run the legs No, but not up. just, you know, listen, overcoaching as well is, a, is an issue as well. If there are, you know, there's a, an emotional element to this as well and a psychological element and not just a strength and conditioning element. Um, there can, you can be throwing too much at people, especially when they're doing a lot of physical training, and then you're trying to, um, you know, you're trying to um, uh, make them more tactically aware. You have to pick your times to do it, and sometimes less is more. And certainly, from a strength and conditioning point of view, less is more. Um, I don't know how much strength and conditioning work that they're doing, but during the Six Nations, you don't have to do much. And I can tell you, especially in the last game of the Six Nations. Or in the you know in the last game of any tournament, the amount of work that you do that week should really be pared down. And I didn't mean that from a training perspective, and even from an analysis perspective. It's about um, you know looking after your body, looking after your mind, and being fresh. And and the greatest example I can ever give of that was uh, their first um, Heineken Cup game or Cup um, final yeah. that I played with Leinster, and Michael Checker was the coach. And I've probably never trained less hard in that week before the game um, than I had an, uh, you know, ever before in any week I had as a professional athlete. And it was just about, um, you know, the work is already done. They've spent so much time in camp together. They know all the moves. Yes, you do some analysis of England, but actually the work that you have to do on yourself, I think it is relatively limited. And it's making people comfortable and re-energizing for the game. And if Eddie, if Eddie Jones doesn't do that to this English team, we'll see a similar outfit. If you're trying to squeeze more out of this team, if you're trying to make them to train harder and do more uh, analysis, I think it's, not, it's going to be counterproductive. Um, and I, I think Joe Smith will will know this team and he'll know his players and he's he'll be extremely well advised by Jason Cowan, the uh, head of strength and conditioning, to uh, refine down uh, the amount of work that they're doing and put them in the best physical and mental shape to deliver a performance the weekend. Well, England spent a week scrummaging against Georgians, mm. mid-Six Nations. That might be part of their problem. And also a lack of focus on the Six Nations, looking ahead to the World Cup, thinking we've, got, we've won two Six Nations in a row, we've got this thing nailed, let's think miles ahead and that's normally when you get caught out but just I couldn't believe how downbeat Eddie Jones was afterwards Jerry just have a quote here from he's talking about the breakdown and how poor they've been 
at ruck time. It's a problem we've got to fix. It's a sizable but fixable problem. We can keep getting better at it, but the reality is that we probably won't get better at it until the World Cup. The game is changing at the moment, which will enforce some selection change. If you don't have power, it's very hard to get momentum. The game has changed, and we're not necessarily well-equipped to handle it. From a guy, a no-excuses sort of character to... Very, It'll be the, the World Cup before you well, see. It sounds, no. like, it sounds like you're saying we haven't got the players. See, this is England yeah. with you know a mm. brighter playing pool than any other nation. Yes, it's kind of bizarre. Mm. Quite extraordinary. And then he's never suffered two defeats in a row as England coach before. I suppose that might partly explain. How Are we seeing a new was. side to Eddie Jones? We haven't yeah, seen before. A, a wounded Eddie Jones, a bit like England, a wounded yeah. one. You know, he's always been um, very free and easy with the glib comments. He's always been setting the agenda and the build up to games. Um, he's always been, and he, but he's been riding the crest of a wave himself. You know, he, mm. he could do no wrong. And now he's got to face the media and the public on the back of successive defeats. I would imagine they'll, this was going to produce a fairly inspired or angry or proud, um, high-energy, one-off performance. There's going to have to be changes in the back row anyway, which didn't have the balance right. Yeah. I mean, Courtney Law certainly helped with their defensive line-out in tandem with Atoja. They really went after the French throw quite successfully. And uh, But that's going to have to change now in that the, he's injured and so is Nathan Hughes. They still have some really good players like in, you know, Owen Farrell is still an outstanding player and they've got pace to burn in the outside edges if he goes with that back three again of Anthony Watson a fullback rather than Mike Brown with um, Johnny May and Elliot Daly on the wings. But um, they don't seem to know their midfield. They still haven't settled on it. They keep rotating between Jonathan Joseph and Ben Teo. When you go with Ben Teo, it signifies a certain game plan. You're going to truck it up fairly straight because his passing is not a big part of his game. When you play Jonathan Joseph, it's a different type of outside centre. Completely, you're going trying to play more on the outside edges and use his footwork um, and his distribution. So they don't seem to be 100% sure what they're doing. I'd imagine they will go fairly route one and be very direct and try and bully Ireland if the best they can here. Yeah, Shane, I get a sense he's going to make a lot of changes. Do you think that's a good or a bad thing for him? Like the Law's injury, for example, I think will benefit England. It'll force them to reshuffle their back row. I, I think that is, uh, that's been fortunate, not for Law's obviously, but it's been fortunate for, for England. But I think he would have reshuffled that anyway to some degree. I think there's a danger in what he's done in reframing where England are all of a sudden. And it does bring me back a little bit to... Uh, Lancaster and what happened just before that last World Cup where he was saying uh, one thing for like 18 months before and then just before this, uh, the uh, World Cup when the pressure came on he actually started singing off a different hymn sheet now this seems to be what Eddie is doing now to reframe it as like I don't either don't have the players or you know we're not going to get this fixed before the World Cup that's entirely different than what he was saying prior to this Six Nations. And, you know, players smell this. And, you know, it's, it can have a devastating effect on teams. And it can't be just that when everything is going fine, that we're, all our momentum and everything that we're doing is based on the success we're having on a week-to-week basis. There has to be something bigger than that. And you can't then have this massive panic uh, and a reframing of the situation you're in to suit your own needs to some degree. Because that's what it is. Like, I, you know, when Eddie started off, you know, he was he started off saying that this was, you know, a longer term project. But then they had that massive success all of a sudden. And then everything was fine. And then to reframe it again to say, um, you know, we're in big trouble. We don't have enough players. And, and um, you know, we're really looking forward to looking towards the World Cup, having been in the job for as long as he can. That's like the, like his his some of the things he was saying after the last game is what you'd expect to hear from a coach who just taken over the job. Um, so you know we can we can identify that the players can identify that as well. You throw in the fact that 
he has this reputation and consistently um, you know, courts controversy in the weeks uh, before big games. Um, that can become embarrassing if you're not winning. And instead of creating like a bit of a buzz and a laugh around the ca- camp, uh, you start looking at your coach in a very different way. So, you know, he's, he was always playing with fire. And it only, it, it only really works if you have, you know, if you're consistently winning and, um, and consistently performing well. And that hasn't happened in, a couple of we- uh, in the last couple of weeks. Um, so unless they get this on, back on track pretty quick, um, I think it, it, it becomes very dangerous. All right, well, it sounds like we're already finished celebrating the Six Nations title. We're all um, next game focused, to use the latest <laughs> buzzword. Thanks very much, Jerry. Thanks very much, Shane. Cheers. Thanks, Emil. That might be, you know, aiming for utopia, but that is the way I am. I'm a little bit stupid regarding this type of thing. I'm a little bit of an idealist. But having said that, I want to be like me. Oh, Richard, how are we feeling this morning? I just watched the goal set to the Titanic music and it really works. Oh, it really, really works. I think this is the most fun we're ever going to have in the podcast. Let me tell you, you're only getting this because you're a former player of mine and <laughs> there's no fourth time lucky, let me tell you. My father thought that, you know, I was a disgrace and embarrassment, didn't allow me to come back home. And this is a 17 years old and we just made the semi-finals of Wimbledon. Fraser and Ali and another incarnation when they were both young and I guess I was too. <laughs> Reverend Jesse Jackson, you're very welcome to the show. Well, the few people resist publicly, he uh, cast a light to lit up our pathway. 30 million watched the fight. What? Yes, that's true. Um, I was better known in Africa than I was in it's Ireland. unbelievable. He threw a hard trial, I think at David Beckham uh, in the, is that right? No. So I had this weird thing where I was always the same weight as my age. <laughs> Holy shit, Kenan Murphy, it's US Murphy. Round of applause for US Murphy. That's him. Kios, right? Upstairs at Kios. Kios, everyone, but that's yeah. fine. <laughs> oh, oh, my words. Oh. Tell us, talk us through that, Steve. I think we know what's happened, but talk us through it. Oh, just saying. Sig Thorson is the old. <laughs> 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 Oh my god. Is it fair to say anybody could have managed those guys? No, of course not. He was about 12. <laughs> Everyone in the city knew about him, but no one had seen him. Look how happy I was. What the fuck happened? No, really. What happened? What happened? It is not war and death and famine, it's not that at all. It's the opposite of that, it's to persuade us of the world outside of that. That's why sport's important. That's just the start of our Grand Slam coverage this week. As you might expect, we're going to be doing plenty more, a couple more shows dedicated to Le Crunch. We don't have a nickname for the games against England and the French have a pretty good one. Yeah. And they seem to use the motivation of Le Crunch to beat the Les Rose Beefs. Yeah, it's amazing. So I feel like we should, yeah, we need to invoke some of that French spirit, <laughs> but maybe play a little bit better rugby. Yeah. And between those two... Who knows, on Who knows how, how, how far we can go? The mm. English uh, media have been quite harsh on uh, their own team after Saturday. Do you want to hear the first line of Mick Cleary's 
uh, article in the Daily Telegraph. Mm-hmm. England were emasculated in Paris 22-16, failing the test of manhood that Eddie Jones had set them, unable to prove that they had any sort of virility in their game. Well. Mick had a point. And he was very eager to make it. Who's, who time. wrote this? Troy Deeney. <laughs> <laughs> Troy Deeney. Kukone's own. Yeah. Troy Deeney. He got his, though. Well, you got to explain for, for people who have oh, that, was, that was Troy Deeney. It was, it was, the match report just sounded a bit like Troy Deeney's comments on the when Watford beat Arsenal a few ah, weeks yes, back, yeah, or yeah, a few yeah. months back. But, of course, they played them again this weekend. Troy only went and missed the penalty. On. Had, a, had it saved by Peter Jack. Never saved the penalty for Arsenal until Troy Deeney came along. Mm. Then he had old Hector Bellerin. In his ear. Goading him. Goading him on Twitter. So, uh, yeah. The timing of our Michael Cheka interview should work out well, given that Cheka is one of the men, really, who played his part in the resurgence of Irish rugby. Uh, The coach of the first Leinster Heineken Cup winning team. So we'll get that to you by the end of the week, which is part of our five interviews, series of five interviews to celebrate our fifth birthday. That's pretty much it for now, I think. Just to say that I don't know if we want to spice this up anymore. The crunch, mm. but uh, you know, it's, it, or maybe we could just go for, go for it. The crunch, the crunch. Since okay, neither the crunch. nation yeah. actually speaks French, so I mean, oh, I don't want to tell you how to do. Your it job, appears as though triple crowns are long since nothing. Yeah, Six Nations titles now don't seem to forget about that. Be any great cause for celebration? I'm, I fear even a Grand Slam is going to be anticlimactic mm. if we only go ahead and beat England. So what we need to do full is duck, yeah. no dinner. Get full duck and no dinner. Yeah. No, get full though. Uh, see, I still don't understand the analogy. <laughs> what we need to do, Ken, is we need to go chasing England's all-time try-scoring record in the Six Nations. Yeah. We currently stand on 17. Yeah. How They're much do they have? a mere 29. So, two, 13 tries. Well, we, t- even if we equal that, I'd say that that would be quite a bit of Owns humiliation to handle. Equaling yeah. it is fine. 12 tries. Three bonus point victories in one game. I figured they're going to lose their spirit after a dogged opening half it really is like talking about how yeah. Ireland usually approaches games against England yeah. trying to stop them winning grand slams. I mean when you think about it I mean uh, we'll just forget about the conversions they take up too much time drop, so, well you can drop, go, drop kick them yeah I suppose yeah but yeah. I mean even saying that I mean you'd still only stick in 70 points on England you know it's not I believe I believe just. wholeheartedly we can put 12 tries on England yeah <laughs> thanks Murph <laughs> thanks Ken thank you thanks, thanks so much so for listening thanks, loads Ken. of great interviews coming up on the World Service looking forward to bringing them to you and we'll start tomorrow with the brilliant Vincent Brown chat to you then what's going is that that's the second time it's gone off they never go home they never go home they never go home those, those, those boys Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.